In this episode, I speak with Johan Sonnen, designer, researcher, and MIT lecturer. Johan specialized in software design and systems engineering. He has worked at Apple, National Center for Supercomputing Applications, and MIT. I had the opportunity to record this episode in Johan's GoInvo studio office in Arlington, Massachusetts, where he is the company's creative director. He's a constant stream of thought-provoking ideas and has a refreshing take on our relationship with the healthcare system. It was really fun to be at a studio, and many thanks to my listeners who suggested that I check out GoInvo. We were light on blockchain technology talk in this episode, but heavy on healthcare design and open source software. Join the Health Unchained community on Telegram at t.me slash healthunchained. Hit me up on Twitter or LinkedIn. One announcement I'd like to make is that Health Unchained is officially on Spotify Podcasts. I'd also like you to know that if you are a healthcare provider, payer, administrator, or really anyone who's still having trouble wrapping your head around this blockchain jargon, specifically in healthcare, you should check out a new online Udemy course meant to teach non-technical people about blockchain's implications on healthcare. The course includes 14 video lectures and sections on cryptography, consensus mechanisms, smart contracts, and how they apply to the healthcare industry. The course is $200, but you can get it for $75 if you use promo code HEALTHUNCHAINED, which is one word. You can find the link in the show notes or search for blockchain and healthcare on udemy.com. That's U-D-E-M-Y.com. It should be the first result that you see. It was created by Jacob Dreyer from Simply Vital Health. And now the interview with Johan Sonnen from GoInvo. Hi, I'm your host, Ray Dogan, and welcome to Health Unchained. On this show, I will be speaking with healthcare entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and executives who are using blockchain technologies to revolutionize healthcare. These innovators are building the distributed infrastructure and diverse communities required for a trusted, secure, and decentralized healthcare ecosystem. Enjoy the show. What is blockchain? What is blockchain? What is blockchain? The doctor will see you now. So welcome to Health Unchained. We're here with uh, Yuhan Sonnen from GoInvo. Um, you know, this is a company that focuses on design. Particular. Does it? Really? Is that what we do? Tell me what you do. I have no Yuhan. idea. You, what, what do you think we do? Well, from what I've read and what I've learned, it sounds like what you try to do is help capture what should go into a product using you know design and data. And um, what I've seen recently is you've worked on projects with the healthcare industries, particularly social determinants of health. So I don't know. Do you want That's pretty good. I should use you as my you know biz dev guy <laughs> uh, so. for this. Yeah, yeah, it's good. Uh, we're we're a design firm specifically in healthcare, like you said, and uh, in software. And how do you design things that you use on your desktop machine, like you're using now, to a laptop, to your phone, uh, all for health and biology and biologic services, and really about the experience of the patient, right? Uh, patient is one serious, uh, the drivers in the driver's seat for healthcare. So yes, the patient's one. Clinician, uh, nurse, practitioner, as part of clinicians, MDs, admins, and then also health IT. We do a lot of health IT work as well. 
Interesting. So before we get into all that, I kind of want the audience to understand like who you are, what's your background, what you've done in the past. Can you kind of briefly, you know, introduce who you are? Sure. Well, my name is Johan Sonen, uh, and you're sitting in our design studio in Arlington called GoInvo, which we started here this office ten years ago. Uh, I pretend to run it, uh, and uh, I think over. Uh, 175 million lives uh, are affected in some way by the software we've designed, especially uh, over the past uh, couple years. Um, and my other job is also teaching mechanical engineering and design at MIT. That's great. So now that we, uh, you know, kind of put that out there, can you tell me a little bit about um, what you have done at MIT? I know you've worked there in the past as well. Are you just teaching there? Or have you done right now? Well, I. I I have worked there, mm -hmm. uh, also as a designer, or wannabe designer, Okay. but I've been teaching there for the past decade how to do design from observational you know, concepts, how, can I go see the problem, can I feel the problem, to identifying it, to sort of mapping it out and system engineering it, to making something. Because a lot of students nowadays uh, uh, have a hard time, when you look at the beautiful devices from uh, Samsung, from Apple, from... Teenage Engineering, or wherever your favorite product line is from. What do you mean Teenage Engineering? Oh, it's another company that's, that's okay. this beautiful design work for mu musicians. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I highly recommend it. It's, uh, it's like design prawn. But uh, they make beautiful things. And I can, I'm looking at your phone right now. And how do you go and figure out how to make something like that? It's not like a radio, you know, uh, where you could see the parts working, in essence. Right. This is much more difficult, and students need a way to, you know, uh, cram on it and it's jam on it. It's not an intuitive thing. I, you know, 30 years ago, no one could have imagined a smart, a smart touch phone as we do now. In the whole, like, well, the whole silicon brick in your pocket is a whole separate, dis uh, sure. separate discussion, but because uh, it's not a very human device. So this is, you know, we've been working or we've been interacting with these smartphones, silicon bricks in our pockets for about maybe almost 10 years now, I would say, right? With Since the these iPhone. guys came yeah. out. Yeah, what's the next 10 years going to look like? Um, that's a, a reason, I don't know. Okay. That's a, well, that was a, a three-second or five-second jumble to say I have no freaking clue. Uh, other than the fact that voice is fairly big right now because it's taken 25 years 40 years really to start to get voice to be at a state where it's usable, mm -hmm. right? Uh, you know, I remember 25 years ago when we were doing dynamic sound at National Center for Supercomputing Applications, um, it was interacting with sound versus a lot of talking, right? Like, so you, how do you make data sing, in essence? How do you listen to information? You can do a lot of listening through music, and you understand, and data can be listened like almost like music. Um, and that was really a one-way interaction. 25 years ago. Now, slowly, you're seeing the evolution, right? Just like all technological upticks, where now we can start to do pretty good, short, choppy conversations with the machine mm -hmm. that are hyper-focused. And you're going to see that expand and expand more, where I'm using voice much more as part of my everyday interactions with machines versus fat-fingering stuff in there. And there's a lot of passive tech that's, I think, uh, going to help our interactions with, with machines and data. Interesting. So I think that's the next. That, that's we're living it now. That's not anything futuristic. Yeah, I agree. I think voice is definitely key. Also, think like wearables, such as um, you know something like the Google Glass idea. A little early for that, I think, but I think it, 
it'll be really useful to, especially in the healthcare field where you might need to see some somebody with a camera. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, but uh, your employer, for the most part, uh, is all about virtual care. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where the silicon bricks in our pocket come in again is, uh, you know, most of my encounters could be done on that phone with any clinician. Right. Right? I think it's like two-thirds. The, the whole point, right? And But a lot of them don't have to be done with, a, with video. They can be done asynchronously. That's my big beef is, who the hell? I'm in my underpants. Uh, no one wants to imagine that. But uh, I am at home, right, at 1 o'clock in the morning, uh, and I've got a severe migraine, and I'm up-chucking. Uh, that's not a good time for me to do video call. Sure. Right? And, and so texting works pretty fast. If I'm guaranteed a result in five minutes or some kind of response from a human being or a machine, uh, it's a no-brainer. That's a good point. That is. I think, well, what do you think about the public's relationship with their own health right now? Oh, we're in, we don't give a rat's behind about it uh, until it hits you in the butt. Um, is that a design problem or is that just that's a, a species human thing. problem I think it's you know uh, one is we've grown into this for millennia mm-hmm. is it's only we only really start thinking about our health when something happens yeah now we're getting a little more Intel uh, we still don't have good diet science mm-hmm. but we're getting a lot that's more true. information about us and how we're working and how we should work uh, a lot of misinformation too and then that helps us at least think about a little bit in the future but most humans aren't programmed for that we just sort of live day to day I'm hungry you know boom I'm gonna whack that plant and eat it that's very that's very <laughs> true we've gotten some order and structure in the last few centuries but yeah in general that's how we uh, operate so let's talk about blockchain a little bit I mean this is kind of what my podcast is focused on most of the time what have you seen in the blockchain world and have you seen any kind of new ideas that would help improve Healthcare using blockchain. Well, I'm no blockchain expert. In fact, uh, I would say I'm not even a kindergartner on the scale of expert uh, expertise. Uh, but there are two. I know of two instances uh, that could be interesting, at least. One is this idea where I have, you know, my data is available to me and it's uh, protected and, and uh, uh, grabbable from anywhere. There's an internet connection. I think that kind of concept is not necessarily just for blockchain, but it's a concept where that's how I want my health to work or my health record, my longitudinal health record, is I want to access it from anywhere on the planet at any time or be able to proxy it to anybody at any time. That's cute too. Right, where uh, there's an audit trail, hey, uh, (laughs) that uh, you can see who's touched it, you know, who sniffed it, who's licked it. Um, and uh, hopefully I'm, give, I'm giving those people permission to do that. Right. right? Uh, and uh, that kind of thing, I think there is some inherent capabilities, like an audit trail, right, and a public ledger that allow, uh, I think, some parts of blockchain to be relevant. I'm not a big believer yet in it. I think uh, it's going to take a lot more to uh, make it, I think, real versus the kind of put a hashtag on something and sell blockchain. It's true. I mean, I guess what you're talking about also is just the idea of having the data in a cloud. That's the part that's important to you. Or that's the part that's important to us as, as people. We well, want to be able to the access data. Exists. The data exists. Right. Uh, I pay someone or some minimal fee or something to maintain it or help, help me maintain it. Right. Uh, you know, just like I do now with email or you name a service of choice, whether I pay because I watch an ad 
like YouTube, or whether um, uh, and it pays for itself that way, or I actively say, yeah, um, uh, I use Sherpa, right, for my primary care at a distance service, and uh, I pay a couple bucks or whatever it is per month for that. Uh, I expect my data just to be there. Mm-hmm. It's and it should be not just my health data, right? Uh, it should be everything about me. Right? So like life data. So yes, you mean? Can you expand on that a little bit? Sure. Um, uh, I am. You know, this nowadays we're going to be getting data about all sorts of fun things like uh, where I was conceived, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So from that moment of uh, conception um, to you know when I am dust. Right, there'll be this dust cloud of data behind me. Uh, and I want that across my life. And then really that should live on forever, hopefully. Um, people might not want that, but like you want that kind of uh, history for the species, for my family. Now, you know, when, when my father died, uh, all his stories died with him. Now, not every story is gonna be a lie about what I'm doing, what we're doing here. People are gonna forget that, and they probably should. But, uh, my life should be at least captured somewhere and like live for a long time, as long as civilization hopefully is around. Right, right, like memorializing your existence. Well, uh, giving it access, giving people giving access. People access to oh, it. what the heck was Yuhan doing here? My great 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 grandfather, five you know kids and things. Like yeah, that. but like you said, there's people that are not going to really want that. Like privacy becomes an issue. But if you have the option to make it accessible or not, then it's not a problem, right? As long as the sure. individual has that. Uh, control it shouldn't be if you own the data right and that gets to like a whole different ball of wax well that's why you know my argument is blockchain could enable people to own their own data so that we won't have to deal with large companies like google or amazon or apple kind of owning the data as they do now or facebook for example and it's a big problem i think facebook you know we don't really know how much of our data they're selling and how they're taking advantage of our ad time. You're making the assumption, I think, as a user, mm-hmm. that they are abusing you. I mean, that's what I, I mean. I would make that assumption. Yeah, there are cases where that has happened, isn't there? I think it happens all the time. Okay, so the assumption is not invalid. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, that, that's a whole separate conversation. Okay. Um, but the but ownership. Uh, I think we have to be clear about what kind of ownership that is. Okay. We're not talking about sole proprietor. This is like a house. I own a house. Um, because when I use a service, um, my data will go through it or they'll amplify it or whatever it is they're doing it um, and add to it and things like that. I think there is a. it's much more of a co-ownership model. Okay. Because um, you have to think about this. Uh, blockchain itself uh, isn't law. Right, it can instantiate law in code, right? But it isn't law itself. So the question is, how do you? What law do we have? What regulation does the U.S. have in order to say no? You own your health data. We don't have that yet, right? And I think that needs to come to life, and then blockchain or whatever technology uh, is is there uh, to use can then codify it. So. My deal is I don't think you can have sole ownership of something like digital data because it's made through multiple sources, multiple people that have their hands on it. So let's just make the assumption that Mass General and I had an encounter, right? And so I went there. The sec- uh, Mass General and I would co-own the data set that we generate together uh, at my uh, appointment, okay? okay? Now, 
I could make um, part of my review of systems or chief complaint that started the whole thing could be done at home with my Alexa, right? And I'm, I'm putting in a chief complaint. It's, you know, funneling it somewhere. Now that data set probably is then co-owned by me and by Amazon, right? And the next chain goes, well, that I need a sort of chief complaint that maybe there's a review of systems. It's done by another audio, maybe Siri. I don't know who does it, right, on my phone. And then who owns that data? Well, the common theme here is me, right? But I'm still co-owning with all the services that's creating it with me. So the, the benefit then for me co-owning data is that I can collate that whole thing from the uh, initial chief complaint catch to the review of systems, the actual uh, clinical encounter, to the health receipt, to go through it, right? That whole cycle, at least I own the whole book of that, right? Yeah. And then other people own parts and pieces, right? I think that's probably the model that we have to think about. Yeah, that makes, makes sense. Would you call it ownership or would they be just using the data? Are you given permission to use your data? Well, permission and ownership are, then are, are now like they're leasing your data. It's a temporary depends. ownership. It depends on uh, on your data use agreement. There's a data use agreement, right? Right. right as part of this, is uh, I may not have the uh, right now. Hospitals typically own your data, right? Mm -hmm. They walk in and you do anything, and it's theirs. You have you have right to see it, right, right through HIPAA, but you have no ownership right. Um, you would need some kind of data use agreement that uh, could say, yeah, maybe uh, if they're if it's a good enough DUA then they only have access to it for 60 days, right? And it, it atrophies after that, right. right? Or if that, I don't think a lot of businesses will want that, but I think we should start by asking for that or demanding it. Hmm. I demand that, yeah, I have full proxy access and proxy rights to say, yeah, when I'm in the hospital and there's a break the glass model, sure, or something like that, right? But then it, 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 after end days, it goes away. I mean, the same thing should be done for other kinds of sharing, like with my spouse or my partner or my kids or my parents, you know, whatever it is. There, there, there needs to be proxies there as well. You mean the health data or like other types of data? No, I, I think well, health data for me, it's just all my data. But like sure. in this case, let's just talk about health data. Okay. So I, I did read, and let me and correct me if I'm wrong, but you've put your health, own health data on the internet and you've outsourced your genetic data as well. Have you had any unexpected consequences from doing that? Has someone planted my DNA in a crime scene, you mean? <laughs> well, <laughs> at some, you know, San Diego Zoo, you know, and some uh, bizarre, you know, thing with the bears. I don't know. That would be um, strange. <laughs> <laughs> no one has, at least to my knowledge. Yeah. And so who the hell knows what's happened, right? Uh, you can download my entire genome, uh, the whole thing. You can download my uh, CCD record from GitHub. Uh, the CCD is a whole total piece of junk in terms of trying to make heads or tails out of it, but you know it's there. You mean as a standard or? Yeah, as a standard and the data. If you look at it, it's like. So there's so know. many standards in healthcare right now. You have, um, you know. What do you have? Fire. You have uh, HL7. What's what's your experience been like, or do you think that there is a good standard? Uh, that's like a, a trick question. Yeah. That, fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, Look, uh, you're right. Uh, that's the one of the Achilles' heel of the entire healthcare system in the U.S. is we don't have a common element definition, right? Where each part of our data set um, is strictly defined. Um, that would make passing data from you to me or to anybody else uh, a, a magnificent lubricant. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, but fire is gaining traction. It's, yeah, no, it's, it's it's pretty. I mean, I can't say that no one's trying. I think there's a lots of efforts towards having a good standard. I know in Europe, uh, instead of fire, they use open EHR, and I've heard that's a pretty good system out there. Uh, but in America and a lot of also the Middle East, they tend to use fire as well. Yeah, fire. I think will will once it takes over the U.S. and Saudi Arabia and other 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 places, right? Uh, where Epics and Cerner's uh, mm-hmm. exactly. you know, are installed, right? That's where a lot of them are installed in yep. the Middle East mm-hmm. um, as well. Uh, then it'll start to ease in and ooze in. Um, and look, it's an open standard, right? And if you really want to get in the knee, uh, in the weeds, there's a fantastic profile called StandardHealthRecord.org, um, Standard Health Record, which is now really uh, trying to get a, a a very detailed profile for the common elements for a human. And I think it's a, it's a really very good project. Now, uh, conflict of interest warning is uh, I am on that project. Uh, uh, Thank you so, for disclosing that. <laughs> yeah, but it's an open source project, right? It is uh, available for anyone to interrogate and to see and to... Uh, Dissect. Di- yes, yeah, whatever you want to do. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I had a question there. I was actually curious about your... Project, your work with the Personal Genome Project. Can you just you know kind of discuss what you did there and what you were trying to accomplish with that? Well, this was uh, when it was the it was called PGP, Personal Genome Project, uh, where George Church and Jason Bobe and others um, were starting to roll out um, PGP at you know I think they were past their uh, hundred people or whatever it is that they had sequenced, of which I am one of those you know a couple hundred. Um, and they wanted to sort of morph the whole effort into something different because science and times change. So uh, we did a small project with them to sort of, well, how do you map the strategy of the new business, the new .org? And so that was going from the personal genome project to open humans because it's not just about the genome. It's about, well, it's all about the humans, mm-hmm. uh, not just that particular data feed. Um, and how do you then share your data with others? How do you have, do research against it? How are you in the loop on that research? And so it was just us helping them sort of uh, um, metamorphose their concept into something, ah, this is what we need to do. And so we sort of mapped it out, helped them map it out, which they knew inherently. We just sort of visualized it for them. Okay, so you visualized it for them. So you created kind of the creatives for their... Well, we walked them through the process. Okay. The output, the, 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 the document, the thing they get at the end is this, ah, that's what we just came up with. I see. And okay. uh, that's it. What do you think about HIEs, health information exchanges, in terms of how they're set up and how efficient they are at actually providing the right data when people need it? Well, how often are you getting the right data when you right when you need it? Not very often. Uh, heck, Dana Farber, your old stomping grounds, right? Can't even talk to the hospital next to it. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> well, that's not a technology issue. It's more of a um, business issue. Well, it's usually a human problem, yeah. right? First, and then there's business, and it's part technology as well. It's an all. It's a whole three cluster screw. Okay. <laughs> but the the problem that inherent with with HIEs is they're basically defining the pipe. Yeah. That the data goes through, uh, okay. But I think a more core problem is defining the sludge that the, that's in the pipe, right? If you actually did that, then I think the pipe would then sort of okay. Now I know what I have to hold. So the sludge you mean would be the data, necessary data? data? Or no, like no, no, no. Sludge is the, the like, CCD that we have now, okay. um, or that information. Could we actually define the actual health data? 
that would have been much more fundamental if you think about you know how you engineer or you system design something. Um, the atomic unit is the human, right, or the patient and their information, right? You can think of other atomic units, but that's a big one when you think about the health system. Mm -hmm. uh, if we defined at least the basic tenets of that data first, before how the data goes from A to B, I think that would be that would have been important. Yet we missed that. But chance. don't you think they tried doing that? Don't you think they they attempted badly? Badly. Yes. I mean, I'm point zero zero one percent culpable here, okay. right? Because we had our hands tied with all sorts of organizations that attempted or uh, tried to be part of that early reg. Hmm. And we, you know, we as a collective screwed up. What projects are currently going on that are going to try to improve that? What about the standard health records? Standard health record, uh, I think, has a shot. What, uh, can you kind of give us a background on that? Project. Sure. It is a project that is born out of uh, MITRE Corporation, which is uh, here in town in Bedford and in D.C. and, you know, I think 18 other places in the U.S. and the world. Um, don't quote me on that number. Mm -hmm. But it is uh, its main focus is doing technology and system engineering for the public good. That is their modus operandi. I like that. Uh, yeah. And they're paid for by our tax dollars. Uh, and they should be. We need more organizations like like Rand Corporation. You've heard of them too, right? Um, where their gray-haired, fabulous engineers uh, uh, or gray-bearded, uh, and uh, they think about and try to execute really tough problems for the U.S. And this is one of them. How do we get a standard definition for those data elements that describe me as a human? When did they start? What year or how? Two years ago. Okay, so very recent. Two and a half, yeah, two years ago. Um, now, really, they started the whole effort with a project called HData, um, right as you know, uh, as ACA was getting rolling, right? Mm -hmm. So this was 2004, 2005, um, and that was their first attempt to try to get uh, into the data standardization game. And it was uh, not a required standard for meaningful use, uh, MU2. It was a suggested, which is where we, I think we, we lost it. Like you it think it should have been required? Well, yes, and, but we didn't do our job um, to get that through. It's hard, but we, 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 I think we over underestimated uh, the policy side by a long shot. Interesting. Yeah, I know. And going back a little to the blockchain world, so there's a lot of protocols that are being developed now, and they're all trying to create like a standard for how to uh, exchange value. So there's different um, tokens that are available. So finding the right standard in terms of um, value exchange is still a problem in the blockchain world too. So it's probably simpler than the healthcare uh, world, I think, finding the right standard in blockchain but, but, but that'll not... get figured out faster i think because people care i mean and you're using right now a lot for money right there's yeah. a financial aspect to this it's different than healthcare which is not transactional it is in a different way but you're right. talking about a transactional financial service which is the underpinning of the well, the biggest use case at the moment at the moment and sure. people care about money a lot more than their health usually so that's why the problem is going to get solved faster interesting uh i don't disagree with you
big news for the Synaptic Health Alliance. On December 3rd, two new organizations announced that they will be joining the alliance to be part of its first pilot project. This project seeks to determine if applying blockchain technology can help ensure the most current information about healthcare providers is available in the provider directories maintained by health insurers. The two organizations are Aetna, one of the top three health insurance companies in the U.S., with $60 billion in revenue in 2017, and Ascension, the largest Catholic health system in the world and the largest nonprofit health system in the U.S. To me, this is really exciting because Aetna recently also merged with CVS Health, making the combined provider directory information from these organizations huge. I'm looking forward to hearing more about the Synaptic Health Alliance in the coming months and years. You can find a link to the announcement in the show notes. And now back to the show with Johan Sonnen from GoInvo. So I really like the, what is it called, the determinants of health kind of collage or kind of image you've created. That yes, has, the pastel circles of life. Yeah, beautiful <laughs> image. I really liked it. I tweeted it, I believe. And oh, you I, did? I think so. If not, I wanna, I'll want i do it later. <laughs> um, <laughs> Into the cloud of Twitter, yes. Yeah. But um, can you kind of just go into the specifics? Like, you, there's five basic elements to it: the behavioral, social, biology, medical, and then uh, geo, which I think is geography, right? So perfect. We have a poster here with beautiful poster with all the elements. You can it's uh, it's on health. Wikipedia um, in the Determinants of Health uh, article. You can go to determinantsofhealth.org to get your uh, open source copy or we have uh, physical copies too but yeah the this describes the major factors in determining our outcomes our health outcomes and if you were to pick one i mean that's a this is a you know parlor trick but it's true is if you had to pick one variable about you to describe your overall health and your health potential outcomes what would you what data point would you choose probably um like exercise mo- movement how much how much you, you move know, around? You move yeah, more. Move more. Yeah. Right, the shirt I'm wearing. Yeah. Um, it's a pretty damn important piece of data, uh, and yet in this, in the whole massive picture, uh, zip code, your geo, uh, where you live, is the single biggest determinant. Right now, yes, exercise and food and age and you know all these other things play into it importantly. But if you just pick one, why? Because it dictates education level, dictates your potential salary. Right, access to care. You know, you go down the list. So, is it where you're born, or is it where you're living? Where you're living. Okay. There are, there are other sub, you know, determinants like where you were born, and then uh, has an impact, but it's a lot lower down on the scale. What's the next, like two or three? Oh, I should know those off the top of my head. Heavy hitters. Um, that's a good one. I thought age was uh, second. Okay, I mean, that makes um, sense. Uh, and then activity, uh, quality of nutrition and activity. Uh, I'll double check. Don't quote me on those. Okay. I All should right. know that. The fact that I don't is, uh, you caught me. <laughs> no worries. It's still really interesting. I'll make sure I actually post this in the show notes for all our listeners. I saw a presentation you had. It was called How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love My Robot Doctor. Oh, my God. You, where did you? Where on earth did you see it that? It was online somewhere. <laughs> and I was doing some research. But I thought it was really Someone interesting. Someone was, was bored enough to post it somewhere? Yeah, okay. it's out there. <laughs> Poor person. But uh, it's kind of interesting how our relationship with our doctor is going to be evolving over the next few years. Or has been evolving. Um, especially with, you know, like you said, voice recognition. You're able to do asynchronous 
diagnosis or whatever. That's one modality of many. Right, right. Uh, do you see that in the future we'll be like talking to a, a robot doctor and, and is it going to be in conjunction with a human or how do you see that playing? Oh, it's going to be all sorts of flavors. Right. Right. Uh, I'm already talking to a robot doctor when I uh, zing Sherpa or when I zing American Well or Doctors on Demand, whatever it is, you know, there's basically some, or uh, doc.ai. It is in essence a, a ingest form mm -hmm. that narrows the potential treatment paths, right? I'm already doing it. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it'll be more and more where I'm not actually physically touching uh, a lot of devices or typing at least. I may be speaking, it may be passively getting a lot of data from me. Your, your last guest and your last show was talking about that, right? The data exhaust. Mm -hmm. um, by, by those data. Right? Yeah. Uh, how do I get that um, all into my longitudinal health record? Um, I, go to the, I go to the bathroom at home. Um, I take a shower, my hair follicles, whatever, you know, I slough off here right on the table. There's a lot of skin cells right there. Bacteria everywhere. It's all related to... All the, all the omics, mm -hmm. right? Um, and that's just going to be picked up, I think, beautifully, simply. We're not going to be involved in that data pickup. That's not our job as humans. Mm -hmm. sure, sure, sure as hell should not be. Right. Um, and so that's just going to get picked up, you know, from wherever. Uh, that, to me, is getting more interesting. Um, and then it should be able to tell me rich stories about what I should do. Because humans, again, not good at history, nor do we really care about it. Right. What's the... F where do I go? Yeah. You know? Give me two options here. Yeah, well, yeah, and how, how those options appear and all that kind of thing, for me, is also another question is, um, uh, who makes those options? Uh, who's coding those? Who's encoding those to me? Uh, and uh, that's my healthcare, and so I have to be. I think we as a society have to be careful about um, who's driving care, and you know that's really pretty important. Right, and it's not like we understand everything about health or science or biology. We there's so much we still don't understand. So if we code kind of programs f with suggestions for us to do things, we might be suggesting the wrong thing because of our lack of understanding of the whole spectrum of biology as well. So there's that risk too. So ideally you'd want an algorithm that is continuously learning from new research and new understandings about biology. Yeah, well, new and replicatable outcomes, right? right? Uh, yes, uh, I think that that is in our sort of front of mind is how do these systems, the learning systems is what the you know, vernacular is. Mm -hmm how they pick up on what we have done, what we are doing, what we may do, um, and what other people like us do. I mean, this is happening all over the place, you know. Uh, so I think, but what, what I'm adamant about is that those algorithms that drive our care are usually, are 99% of the time, I don't know that many of like care planning services or these uh, review of system services, or diagnosis services for that matter, that are open source. Uh, we get into a scenario here where if those models are completely closed, how do you then validate those, right? Right. Uh, other than the one of the EVPs of marketing going, uh, yeah, we tested it with 100 people. Um, we did a little mini trial. I'm like, really, can you replicate that? How do you do that? Can I see the evidence? And all of a sudden, like they're like, well, we can show you some of the outputs, right? Because that's, uh, but the, the algorithm itself, no, no, that's closed. You can't interrogate that. Well, it's, that's almost 
uh, like a crime against the healthcare system and us. This is a black box. You don't know what's going on. Yeah. Uh, and there was a great article by a, a NHS doc who I sort of stole that line from. It's a crime against humanity. Uh, and when I read that, it, like, it made the hairs on the back of my neck go up. And I'm like, my God, he made this, rolled out this case of why healthcare algorithms and services really need to be open source. Hmm. Um, and I highly recommend the article. I'll, I'll send it to you afterwards. Yeah, I'll add it to the show notes for sure. Thanks. Can you tell me a little bit, or just kind of go over how you started to create the Primary Care Manifesto? What was your initial thoughts? My initial thoughts were that the healthcare system is uh, not a place most people want to be. Uh, especially as you know, as in the care team, patient side, and uh, primary care is primary. It is it is a core part of how we operate. And if we made primary care a lot better or and a lot more accessible, it's already very good in some mm-hmm. ways, right? Uh, if we concentrated on getting primary care right and the education of citizens and residents that uh, you know on how to eat well, how to uh, live with a little uh, health in mind. Uh, We need to start early, meaning in schools and with primary care itself. And so that's why uh, uh, I brain farted with a couple other people this manifesto of a couple main points of how I want to interact, how I think my kids may want to, and how people uh, in general need to interact with primary care. Yeah, I kind of want to read out like at least the the first couple here is First one is help the patient own, control, and understand their complete, merged, accurate, timely, digital standard healthcare record. This helps the patient own their data. Yeah, right? the, the, help yeah. them own their health. Yes, yeah, so I think it's own their health. Meaning own their then health, they then right. they start to say, well, yeah, it's they mine. take some responsibility for their actions. It's not like because I feel like now with many of us with insurance plans, we kind of don't really think about how, who's paying for it. It's always like on the outskirts of. The whole process, so insurance is going to take care of it. Here's my insurance card. I don't own my health. It's kind of the insurance plan's health. Sometimes it feels that way. Because they're the ones also making decisions on what kind of health care I'll be getting. They will. Yes. Um, it's a dastardly uh, cycle. Right. Um, do I think that uh, all residents in the U.S. will really lock on to ownership? Probably not. Not everybody. And I, I don't think like... Most people don't want to think about their health data. I mean, that's like, nobody wants to think about it. Yes, it helps patients start to feel like they have control a little bit of healthcare versus now it's another entity. We've, we've offloaded it uh, for 60, 70 years already um, where the doctor owns it, right? Mm-hmm. He, she doesn't come to my house anymore uh, like uh, uh, the country rural doctor with their uh, bag. Uh, and come to my house uh, like they were on Little House on the Prairie. I still want that. It's coming back, right? But we, since, you know, uh, 40s, really, or even before, we, there's insurance. There's, you know, other people that handle it. And so it's become out of our daily, like, you know, understanding. Yeah. Out of our, we don't have vocabulary even about it. So we've outsourced it. Now I think it'll take a lot for us to feel like we need to control a little bit. But if it becomes more transactional, just like I'm going to, like... Uh, uh, get a cup of coffee. I'm paying for the coffee. I got a receipt. Boom, done. Over everything is known as trend. You know, I can see the price. Uh, that will help enormously. And if the data then is, uh, I have some control over it and ownership of that. 
then I may have some more ownership of my health. Well, especially since a lot of the data that you might be generating, especially as tech gets better, it's going to be valuable. So people feel like they want to have or collect some of that value somehow. So I think, you know, they don't want to just give it away. So as some data, people may want to give it away and some people may want to earn. Right. Yeah. So and it depends, right? If they're giving it away in order to help pursue better research, that's I mean, that's a great cause and I think that a lot of people will want to do that. But um, sometimes it's for a researching a new pharmaceutical drug and you know, patients need to get paid for that. Patients should get paid for that, right? Yeah. Um, and not everyone has the means Mm-hmm. You know, in order to you know give things away that easily, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah, that's a whole a whole other track. What's the most important social problem that you're concerned with today? Social problem? Well, uh, education. Okay. Uh, that underpins everybody in this country and around the planet, uh, and we're screwing that up left and right. And we're not making it a countrywide priority uh, from little teeny tots, and that's really where it's most important, right? We're, you know, age four or three to uh, 18 as a, we have to have basic, very good education. Uh, and then uh, I think we're, you know, college is becoming ridiculous in terms of the costs. Um, and so, but edu- if, if, we can, if we're screwing up education, everything else can go to hell. That is the biggest social problem at the moment. Interesting. Are you working on any projects around education? Uh, well, I teach. Okay. Well, that's <laughs> true. So I am. Uh, You're an educator. Yeah. Well, I, uh, maybe. However, um, I'm also. Uh, it's easy to throw stones because I am at a really fabulous engineering institution that is basically just like Harvard is a fabulous institution on top of a huge private equity firm, right? the amount of money that both institutions have is ridiculous. When they talk about, oh, we need another department and it's going to cost us a billion dollars, that's a different kind of scale. Yeah. Uh, and a, and a luxury that very few humans on this planet have. And they recently announced, MIT recently announced uh, a new AI kind of facility that they're building out, right? That, yes. Yeah. That was the billion dollar effort. Yep. <laughs> Which is in essence a new department. What's your favorite book? Well, look, uh, I, don't, I don't have a favorite at the moment. Um, there are ones that I use every day, uh, like Strunk and White, Elements of Style, I have it on my desk. But what about just like things I'm reading now? Uh, I just finished um, Automating Inequality, and that is a phenomenally good book. Um, you know, it, you'll require some Prozac to get through it. <laughs> um, and it really it dovetails with the second book, which uh, I'm just finishing, uh, which is Auto- um, Democracy in Chains. Is the the history, the brief, the last fifty years uh, history of how the political system got this way, right? It goes into the color of law and how we're uh, how the powers now in our government are really angling for the real money behind it is. Uh, looking for and wanting power of the few, uh, not the way that we've intended it as a country, where it's power of the people. Um, this hmm. that this whole clandestine or not so clandestine uh, component of this is uh, how can business uh, of the few really govern everything, and you're seeing that now. So those are my two that I've just finished. The Color of Law is also a good one um, uh, that talks about the history of 
how law and voting has been established in this country. Sounds like you're really interested in like how governance structures are uh, managed or created or designed, really. Yeah, well, designed is a funny thing because a lot of this has been intentional. Um, a lot of the design for the stratification of human beings, uh, regardless of country, but here, uh, because I'm, I live here and I'm right. hyper-interested in it, um, uh, has been, in essence, designed. Hmm. There's a lot of people who are thinking that blockchain will be able to kind of give the people the power back to the people by kind of decentralizing power. How is that going to help somebody? Describe how that's going to help them. Well, for example, people... So maybe not particularly in the United States where we have a pretty decent government compared to some other countries where, you know, freedom of press, freedom of speech or freedom to work or do any other of these like normal things we have here is um, freedom to trade, freedom to spend money or even have a bank account is um, taken away from people. So, you know, countries like Venezuela are really um, broken countries right now. I think giving them access to banking, just banking in general, using, for example, Bitcoin, would enable them to transact as they want and um, without censorship. Well, I, I don't know. It's a hard sell. Um, okay. It's a really hard sell because depending on, if you're talking about here in the United States, for the, you know, 30 million that are now uninsured, you know, maybe they're dual eligible um, and they're living week to week. They're getting CHIP, they're getting SNAP benefits, you know, things like that. Or you're in Venezuela and you're living on $25 uh, a week or whatever it is, or, you know, 250 bucks a, uh, a month. Um, I think it's much less, but yeah. But yeah. I'm just saying, they're, even at that levels, um, having to interact with, if you know, virtual currency, I think is a different level of... Uh, Engagement. Sure. Now, Snap actually has digital currency. Snap uh, food stamps. Okay. Right. So does Mass Cash. Right. Where it's uh, not the lottery, but where you are, you need basic operating cash funds to pay rent and things like that. Uh, Chip, you know, has in essence there's a virtual currency there, but it's just credit. Right. Right. You have food stamps that. You know, right, but it's credit that where the currency or the actual data is stored in a centralized service the government has access to and they know who has all the funds basically yeah what the accounts hold so with a decentralized currency or distributed you know network no one can control the accounts except for the owner of the accounts and you you have rules of those accounts right which in essence the government is going to be creating in this case well you can have laws that try to enforce the rules are but it's it's still at the end of the day the code um, kind of code is over the rules. Yeah. So if you have the private keys of an account and you're able to access internet somehow or any kind yeah, of yeah, yeah. I think you, you'll be able can. to um, transact. No one can stop no one can freeze that account is the point. Because there, there is no central location or there's no central server that's like Well they, they may be able to freeze it if they have access rights. They can't. So, oh, I mean, in, in the example for Bitcoin, they wouldn't be able to freeze an account. Oh, yeah, but I'm saying if the, if the rules are set up as such, right, mm-hmm. that that network... Yeah, um, so different networks could have yeah, rules that rules. Where, where you could potentially do that. That's true. Yeah, I'm still not sold on that, but... Okay. Yeah, I mean, it takes time. <laughs> we'll see. And I could be wrong, too. You know, that's just my opinion. So, um, 
We shall see. Time will tell. <laughs> well, you look at the country of Estonia, what they're doing. Right. Um, you know, that's uh, where my parents were born. Oh, okay. And so I am also a du- dual citizen now. Um, and actually, I have to, let me, let me, because I'm, uh, I'm in the paperwork phase. I don't want to fib. I want to make sure it's true. Okay. I, I have a digital card that, I, I'll start over. So what was I saying? Oh, I see. Uh, you're in the pro. you're saying in the process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, yeah. I, for them, they don't. People don't care. Uh, yeah. So, shit, I'll start over. Um, where was I going? Maybe You're I was saying like your Estonia. parents are from Estonia. Well, Estonia is yeah. another good example of a system that's rolled out. Actually, I don't know if it's blockchain or not, but I know the laws and the digital code that support it support anybody in the world having a business card or a license to operate a business online through the country of Estonia. Um, they have all their head, uh, their healthcare data online. You know that they can get anytime, anywhere. They have, uh, they can do their taxes probably in about four or five minutes at most uh, every year. Dream. Yeah, uh. that is because their data is, you know, uh, online uh, is governed by uh, um, a somewhat competent technical uh, and uh, staff, and the law is dictated by you know the the youngish people running the country. Yeah. Um, and so they're very, very progressive. There's something we should be learning from them. Um, yeah, I know a few people who actually, they applied for e-citizenship, to be e-citizens of Estonia. Yes. So That that just takes, I think, 15 kron, and you're in, or 50, whatever it is. Yeah. There's no that real application. I think it's like 80 bucks or something. Yeah. I don't know. Do you have a favorite business leader or someone that, when you were growing up, you thought was doing the right thing, and you kind of have them in your mind when you do work now? Uh, Ralph Nader. Ralph Nader. Yeah. Um, I I'm still have, you know, I still have wince at the uh, election uh, with Gore. But if you can get, <laughs> um, you know, if you look at his legacy of work for the U- United States, it's insane. Um, you know, not just starting with the seatbelts and the automotive industry to now, you know, uh, patient rights. He's working on that, and to auditing um, the government or the DoD. All I mean, I'm just these are small little points of light in his enormous career. Hmm. Um, I think the guy's a hot ticket. Do you have a favorite designer? Usually, some of my favorite designers were engineers. Okay, all right. Uh, or scientists, artists. Favorite scientists. Um, uh, there are a couple of some amazing artist engineers uh, that I know that I've always um, uh, been fond of. Uh, David Wallace is a really fantastic designer engineer at MIT, uh, and I really I just enjoy how he approaches the idea of design and products and things and experiences. Camille, an old colleague of mine, Camille Goodison, uh, was a is a PhD in art, uh, music, and CS, and he was a rare blend of this artist engineer. And I was—I just like that kind of person. I'm not saying that all their work is, mm-hmm. you know, actually right. in the Sistine Chapel, but like uh, I really appreciate their minds. A local guy uh, who's who was good. Um, I saw this like he was good. He's a good guy. Is a Ben Fry, um, who does both. Uh, I think uh, design, information, and storytelling, and he has to understand the technical underpinnings of something. I think that's a really those are good examples, David. Um, Camille and Ben of um, how do you have engineering and aesthetics and world knowledge at the same time? 
Wow. You tell a story with, with yeah, that. yeah. I think that's like a theme here. So like being able to tell that story and design it in a way that people can absorb easily and chew on it and chew on it and choking. just like yeah, exactly, and not ignore um, and feel like they're learning something and they want to continue doing that. Well, that's it's hard. hard. That's, that's really hard because learning is not like a game. You know, well, uh, you can make it a game. It's I guess. rare that that really works, though. Okay. Can you name a game that, like, my God, I learned calculus? Uh, you know, I mean, <laughs> I'm being a little facetious, yeah. but like, you're. It's a very tricky yeah. way to do it. Now, you can do some lightweight learning that like way, trivia. <laughs> but that's facts. Yeah, those are facts, and those true. are those. That's not how you create meaning with things or like understanding. It's not conceptual, and it's true. Hmm. Tough ticket. Um, just to kind of wrap up, you know, is there any last words you'd like to leave with the audience? Anything you want them to know about GoInvo or what you're working on, recent projects, or how they can get in contact with you if, they, if you want them to? OpenSourceHealthcare.org. That is where our little treatise on how health IT and the stack that supports all of our research, our uh, health records, uh, and in general, our digital interactions with our clinicians and our friends and our family, uh, we're, we need that. We demand it to be open source, at least a good chunk of that. And that to me is really the, the reason why I'm in, in healthcare too, uh, is that I've sort of grown up in an open source, open science world that garners good results. And I think it's critical for healthcare IT to go much more open so that we as a fellowship of citizens and residents uh, can have much better access to care at much different price uh, with much, much, much better outcomes. Very well said. Johan, thank you for your time. Really appreciate it. And I want to, you know, poke around the studio and check it out a little bit more. So thank you very much. Anytime. Hey, y'all, you cyberpunk health warriors and nimble digital disruptors. Check out healthunchained.org. And remember to subscribe to Health Unchained on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and iTunes. Join the Health Unchained community on our Telegram group, t.me slash healthunchained. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends, your bosses, your teams, your students to listen and subscribe. Thank you.